So I'm Gideon Jabba of uh, Illuminati Studios. Uh, we are a small uh, startup based out of Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and uh, been in the industry for the past uh, 10 years. Uh, been into games programming since the age of pretty much 10 back in Ivory Coast. Uh, so I was actually originally from Ivory Coast, uh, West Coast Africa, and I moved to Canada, it's been 16 years, 2002. And I went to school at York University, did a, from there I went to a International Academy of Design for video games specifically, and then started my career actually teaching. And uh, went from uh, working on Gametronics, casino games, from their THQ, which brought me to Montreal in the first place. And I was at Ubisoft for the past four years. And uh, this year, I decided to start my own studio and uh, get into the indie scene and get to the indie world. Nice. Uh, so you, how many years have you been, uh, I guess, working in and around games in some way? Uh, in the games profession, it's been 10 years. 10 years. Yes, it goes by very quickly. Uh, <laughs> And what 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 got you interested in games in the first place? Oh, that's that goes way back as to my first memories. I think it would have been a <laughs> yeah second grade. I would have been like what uh, I would have been a seven at a time, and it's the first time I saw Mario on the NES. And uh, mind you, this is like what nineteen ninety two in Ivory Coast, and it was the first time any of us had seen a consult. A friend of mine that bought it from the states, and uh, we all went over to his place, and he's like, "Oh, this is new stuff called Nintendo." And I'm like, "Okay." He puts it on and I see Mario jumping and the first question is, how are you doing this? And uh, the rest is history. So from then on, I just got curious and just started to learn on my own. And when was the first time you actually like got a taste of game development? Uh, but actually, that would have been around fifth grade. So it would be around 96. And so between 92 and 96, where I knew I wanted to do games, all I did was draw because I didn't know you had to do programming. So finally, I asked my computer teacher, how come, how do you make these drawings come alive? And she's like, you have to learn how to program. And I'm like, what is programming? And uh, so <laughs> she's like, uh, well, you know, you write scripts to the code and it was all gibberish to me at that time. But I'm like, I want to know because I want to make the game. So we had like a course in basic. Uh, uh, but at the end of the course, I was like, oh, my game doesn't look like Street Fighter or Mario. She's like, well, you have to learn C++. So she happened to have a book with the original Dido and Dido for C, C++. And she's like, nobody's qualified. You're on your own. I'm like, cool, I'll take this book. And um, just started teaching myself throughout middle school, throughout high school. And then, you know, uh, needed else my career. So that's how it started. That's really neat. Like, I always hear stories about how people uh, first get it in their head that they can make games, that that's something that they can do. Yeah. And I I don't very often hear someone say that that happened to them that young. <laughs> yes, yes. No, it's uh, yeah. No, it's fortunate. It's uh, kind of like I guess in that moment when I was that young, it just uh, you know when things just all connect. It's just you know perfect circumstances uh, that I guess the stars the stars aligned at that moment. So it's uh, very fortunate to have started very young and uh, yeah, make my way through slowly but surely because. Uh, you know, when you're starting off pre-internet, everything takes forever. <laughs> you can't just <laughs> yeah. type in what you need to know. So I mean, by the time I actually understood this thick book that I was reading, it took me like four years. So yeah. So that was with basic, right? So what? Uh, that you, your first, I guess, game programming or programming experience was using basic. Is that correct? Yes. My first introduction to programming was basic. And so that was like a year. And then and, I just to learn C++ from then on. Oh, neat. And what, what other tools have you made games with throughout your career? Uh, I guess basic, C++, uh, Java, uh, C Sharp. Uh, currently, we use C Sharp uh, for our Unity engine. Um, mm -hmm. JavaScript, uh, Flash. I think it's like uh, I've touched pretty much all the main languages out there at one point or another, either academically or professionally here. I like to hear I like to hear flash <laughs> yes yes uh, that's how I got started with making games but it, it was uh, back in I remember when I was actually teaching at trials we made our first game in flash because at that time that was actually believe it or not the quickest dirtiest engine you could actually come up with because unity was yeah. still in its infancy and it was like the easiest thing to kind of like come up yeah 
Neat. Um, so tell me a bit about your studio. Uh, so how, when did you start your studio and uh, what's the current project that you're working on there? Of course. So we started uh, January 1st of this year, so 2018. Uh, and so this has been a lifelong passion of mine uh, to be able to do it. And finally, I'm like, the time is right. So I took all the experiences, all my connections, and then we started up. Now we are four men strong. So uh, it's just I'm um, the tech lead, also the founder. Uh, I have, we have another programmer, Jose, who's also the gameplay programmer. We have our uh, art director, uh, Zoe, who is kind of like in charge of all the artistic uh, vision of the game. And then we have our concept artist in UX, uh, Samo. And uh, the neat thing about our studio is that we kind of like one of a more distributed approach. So we don't have a central office. We all kind of work remotely and we all uh -huh. kind of like fitted together by Azure infrastructure. And uh, pretty much one of the reasons why my motivation was uh, I was tired of being stuck in traffic. It was taking like Montreal traffic could be insane, especially in the winter. So it was uh, one of the motivation also get the flexibility of time. Uh, the first game we're working on is called BOA. And uh, it's a top-down uh, action platformer. And the uh, whole idea is to kind of like promote Afrofuturism. So uh, that's, uh, I think, one of the topics that is not addressed a lot in the video game industry. And growing up in West Africa, you know, I love all kinds of games, but it's uh, sometimes you just want to be able to see the stories you grew up with in video games. And so it's like, uh, this is the perfect opportunity to be able to do that. And I'm actually just going to send a quick link over to the... Uh, Ask me anything, just so people can see what the game is about in more details. Oh, cool. I'll share the link in the show notes in the podcast feed as well. Um, so that's pretty neat. Like the the core inspiration of the game and the core design theme is Afrofuturism. Uh, that's um, and I believe you've released a demo on Android already. Yes. Yeah, so we actually have a, a demo on. Uh... On Android, we just came out last week, but we also have the same demo, the tech demo on the Windows 10 platform. So that's both Xbox and Windows 10 PC and Windows Mobile. Yeah, on the Windows Store. Yes, on the Windows Store. So that was actually the first one that we released uh, uh, back in January when we started. And so it's like very, very uh, crude uh, tech demo. But uh, every month, every month, maximum two months, we do an update. So our approach with uh, this game is uh, kind of like a, what we call open development. So we kind of like release a tech demo and we just let it out there. And it's almost like a, almost early, early, early access. So we have people giving us feedback. We actually adding new content every month. Uh, we are actually adding new features and this allows us to be able to uh, connect with the community early on instead of uh, waiting until the end of the game. Cause you know, games take a long time to make. You be in it, so you start off and before you know it, it's been three years. And uh, the game comes out and then it becomes a scramble to try to build a following, to try to connect, get feedback. So we want to start from day one. Mm. And uh, tell me a bit about how, so you have an indie company and how is the funding and model for the company? How does that work? Uh, does, because in, in different companies, maybe uh, all of the, indies would agree to not get paid until the game ships or have you found a way to make sure everyone gets paid while everyone works on it yes so that's a, that's a very good question so that's actually starting off i knew that uh, you know going indie is never it's never easy and uh, it's always very tight but uh, we really want to stay in business and stay for long so the first thing i did is contact some friends uh, we got ourselves incorporated and got our first kind of like uh, investors uh, to be able to invest in it. So for the most part, uh, everybody pretty much apart from myself works part-time. So we pay them part-time. And uh, mm -hmm. that's how we're kind of like uh, rolling with the uh, with the finances of the company. So it's a small modest bu uh, budget for now, but uh, we want to be able to reach the point where we have more to show more of the content and then be able to uh, go from there. So it's uh, the most important thing for me was to keep this small team that we have engaged and involved. And finance is always an obstacle. So I kind of like, you know, made sure bootstrapped and got the minimum investment required to be able to keep everybody fitted together. Yeah. And the, so everyone else has, in addition to working in the studio, they have some other part-time job that also brings in more income. Um, actually, well, I'll, 
there was a team actually young graduates. So, for example, Jose is actually doing it while he's finishing his last year in school at George, uh, uh -huh. George Brown. Um, Zoe is uh, doing a part-time. She just graduated, so she just finished her thesis. So she's doing a part-time. She finished her thesis. And, and Samuel that has a part-time job, and he's also doing a part-time. So, yeah, so they're kind of like all finishing school. So it's a very young team to so finish yeah. school to be able to do it. So, um that's kind of how it's working for now. So hopefully the objective is to be able to go by, uh... yes, sorry about that. I had a nice <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah, no so I have a two-year-old that she is uh, pretty much getting excited. So, <laughs> yeah, so where I was going is that uh, that's the whole idea. So we're doing a part-time now, keeping the team together, and the objective is by the end of the year, pretty much be able to go on full-time. Nice. Um, and so how, how far along is the game? Uh, I know you've been doing open, this open development style. Uh, do you, do you, is there an end in sight yet? Uh, like how far into the production process are you? Oh, we are still early. So we, uh -huh. I mean, we want to, um, we've been, a, I would say a little bit ambitious because it's our first game. And I think, uh, what's it called? Uh, the tone you set for your first project, we kind of like defines a lot. Almost a career mm, yeah. or the next project that comes along. So we wanted to give it our maximum. Uh, initially, we have actually envisioned a two to three year production pipeline. And uh, we want to make some, uh, like a, something that appeals to the core fan and something that, you know, we remembered uh, all along. So we are still, in terms of production, I think we're only like 25% in. I mean, if well, our vision of like going, calling it like live, this game is like has all the contents that we want in it. It's around, you know, first quarter of 2020. Yeah. So we're still, that's why we're still in tech demo phase. So we're at the stage where, you know, right now we finally have all the components of our engine in place. We now begin to add uh, more like things like AI. We begin to integrate our blockchain network, multiplayer. So we, we have a long ways to go. <laughs> uh, you mentioned blockchain and I also remember seeing it on your website. Can you tell me a bit about how you're using that tech? Yes, yes, of course. Uh, so, I mean, a uh, blockchain is, uh, I think it's, it's, it's going to revolutionize the game industry. And I think it's already started. I think it's, uh, as important as the internet was back when it's first, you know, beginning to pick up root in 2000. And the way we are using blockchain is, uh, we're using the way games use online for multiplayer. So it's the game will not be fully distributed in the sense that it's going to run directly 100% on the blockchain but it's going to run more like the way first-person shooters have the online packages onto it. And one of the first things that we're doing is a leaderboard system. So on the blockchain, we have the, uh, the leaderboard results there. And what that allows us to do is kind of like have a different business model where people can kind of like, you know, pitch in into a pot and then whoever ranks, depending on your ranking leaderboard, it gets redistributed automatically and it's transparent and everybody can see it. And so it allows us to also uh, have a virtual currency that lives beyond the game. Uh, that's one of the approaches. The other approach also, and that's actually one, one is uh, content ownership. So, you know, we've talked, we're talking about skins, we're talking about player characters, we're talking about the different components that you in the game. And uh, traditionally, when you actually play a game, I mean, when, all, when it's all said and done, you're actually renting the components. Once you stop playing, the company's not around anymore. It's kind of like, it's, it's, it's the end of that story. Uh, with blockchain, it, it allows the content to live on, but it also creates like a seamless player economy. So, you know, if I started playing the game and, you know, you open loot boxes, you have all these skins that I've acquired and now I'm level 50 and I want to have a different character, uh, I'm not stuck with all these contents that doesn't necessarily appeal to me at that moment, but I could trade it with somebody else, depending on the term, etc. It also allows players to know that, you know, you have one unique character and, uh, almost like a fusion of, you know, Magic the Gathering trading cards. Uh, and that's kind of a, just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, later on, we're talking about esports uh, that we're actually trying to get into because our game is more like arena battles. So it's like a nice, uh, makes itself for a nice kind of like a quick, uh, up to four players can battle it out and uh, the results can be tracked. And that way you have like your universal ranking. So with the time it comes to go on stage, you know, everybody knows about you. I consult the blockchain, you know how, while this person is performing, there's no, it's stuck on this server, this server doesn't have legitimacy, everything is kind of like, so those are like 
the main components that we explore right now with the blockchain. Cool. So it's almost like you're using it as an alternative to a, a, a server. So like instead of you maintaining a central server that has everything, you've distributed it. And that way the game can live on even if you if even if the company moves on and doesn't maintain a server or something. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. So, uh, uh, yeah, exactly. So we are, it's kind of like a complement to the server system that we have in place. And that's actually one of the things that we also looking to change it is because, uh, like you're saying, you know, I've played games in the past and you get into it, but maybe the game doesn't have enough population or maybe the studio decided to move on and you can't enjoy the game as much. So something like the blockchain players know that the game will always work. You know, you can set up your server, even if the company's going on to the next project. You can plan on supporting this game for as long as possible, but it also allows players to do their own thing. I think one of the best models would be kind of like Counter-Strike. You know, it's been around forever, just yeah. by the nature of the fact that anybody can spin up a server and build a community around it. And so that's kind of like with the blockchain, it makes it even easier and it makes it more distributable. So what are the tools like when working with blockchain? Like if, if I wanted to start a project and start tinkering with that technology, like what tools are available to me? So yes, so the first thing is knowing what blockchain you want to use. So I guess this there's two these two approaches. So the first is doing your own blockchain from scratch. Uh, I would not recommend that just because uh, <laughs> yeah, the nature of blockchain makes it such that it's as strong as the amount of people that are on it, right? So unlike centralized servers, as strong as one node, it takes a lot of people. So there's so many efficient and popular blockchains out there. You might as well just pick one. Uh, once you have that sorted out, picking one becomes more kind of like your objective. So currently, I guess that the top ones that makes it easier to do what they call decentralized apps or develop programs on the blockchain will be uh, EOS and Ethereum. There's many others out there, but those are kind of like the two ones. Uh, for us, we settled on EOS. And one of the reasons was because EOS allows, uh, how do you say, the end user to be able to inter interact with the blockchain for free, which was key for us. Ethereum on the other end, it allows the developer to develop for free, but the end user has to pay for each transaction. Mm. Exactly. Uh, so, and each one has its own programming language. So uh, uh, Ethereum uses kind of something that looks a little bit in a hybrid of like, almost like Python of some sort. So it's like, you have to learn the whole language from scratch. With uh, EOS, it's the user C++ for their uh, DApp. So for coming from a gaming background where we've used C++, our whole life is kind of like, okay, it's a no brainer. We don't have to go back and reinvent the wheel. So that's kind of like, a, those are the two options. So uh, once that is started, it's a case of releasing new technology and it's a lot of ex experimentation. So that makes it exciting, but at the same time too, to be honest, we all kind of like discovered as we go. So uh, the best places is, you know, hanging out in uh, Telegram channels, uh, go to Medium and uh, really Google is your friend uh, in these type of projects. But uh, those are the two main options I'll say that is out there, yeah. So I know you've done web development and game development, and so you kind of have an idea of just how different the two things are, even if many of the tools underneath are kind of similar. Mm -hmm. How is it like to program for blockchain? Is it like a completely different paradigm? Do you have to wrap your head around individual concepts? That you don't see in in either other types of programming. Um, yes and no. I think actually, if you're coming from a web background, it's a little bit easier uh, to develop a blockchain, just because the especially if you're one that is coming from a, a I'll say a, a backend programming, the concept of you know servers and databases makes more sense because you're used to doing uh, dealing with it. I think that's the thing with blockchain is. Uh, on the very core of it, it's more centralized block uh, database or ledger, right? That's actually one of the most basic principle of it. Uh, but then once you start doing D apps, you're talking about doing distributed applications. So for those who have done like, you know, SQL distributed nodes or uh, dedicated servers when it comes to gaming. So for web developers, I'll say it makes it a, it's not that, uh, that foreign. That being said, though, web developers uh, tend to use more kind of like, I'll say, a high, high level language in terms of JavaScript. Uh, in the back end, I mean, it depends, you know, you tend to use maybe Java or uh, uh, JS Node, which is another JavaScript or C Sharp. So that's where changing maybe to, let's say, C 
or what's it called to Ethereum's language might be a might be a drain. Hmm. That's neat. I'm I'm still wrapping my head around it. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. It it sounds and, like uh, really fun thing yes, to play with. Actually, I'll send a link to the uh, EOS developer portal, and they have like oh, a nice. nice introduction to uh, um, how to get started, how to get set up to make it for those who are curious as to develop a D app on the uh, on EOS. Um. So we mentioned web development. Uh, what kind of web development have you done? In the past, I would say I've done the full stack. So from all the way to the back end to low level, setting up from system admin all the way to front end, all the way to oh wow, whatever, yeah. And uh, actually, one of my first experiences of web development was in uh, in the in the tenth grade actually, and uh, it was too new to us. So we are t- we are talking about two thousand, <laughs> the year about the year ninety nine two thousand. We had just uh-huh. got the internet in that record at least at our school and the teacher was like oh there's this new stuff called web and i was all into games and she's like she really learned that you know it's the future of technology and everything everybody's making websites and everywhere we seem to be capable of it so that's what actually got me into it and at that time we were talking about html etc and when i went to york university they were using actually java as the programming language and so that's what actually got me into the back end of doing stuff and uh, i got really close i uh, became really good friends with the teacher that was teaching a course and he was big Java guru. So I started learning a lot about Java and uh, setting up servers, uh, backend technology. And, uh, and as you're going and through back your, then, go ahead. Back then you had to manage the physical server. You couldn't just like spin up an, a, a cloud server. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. So, so pretty much it was all kind of like Frankenstein. And so, you know, I take my, my desktop, which was my, and I'll be all, and it wasn't the most powerful, but you know, I made sure I was capable. So you had a second hard drive, and you spin it out, and then you, you spin the IP, and uh, and you know, so when you're a student, also then it's like you know, spending like uh, IP addresses were not cheap, uh, but let alone domain names were not kind of like the that that cheap. But you know, I just put some money together in my first domain, terminal.net, and uh, you put it all together, and you start to learn it. As you're saying, it was it was more involved. It wasn't that. What well, what was your domain? at laterminal.net. Laterminal.net. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So the whole idea was to kind of like make a portal, but uh, it kind of like a pattern <laughs> as I got more into gaming from then on. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, back end. And then uh, when I was finishing school, we started doing some contract work and that kind of like brought me more towards the front end. And uh, started also dabbling into PHP because literally Java was more enterprise-ish. And PHP, yeah. whenever we want to do a contract, it's, you know, PHP. So learn PHP and uh, then also, you know, the HTML already knew, but JavaScript became more and more important. So learn my JavaScript from there. So in the contract work, I'll pretty much do everything uh, from designing from Photoshop, uh, design the web page from Photoshop, uh, then try to, you know, cut it up and bring it in into a, a HTML, CSS, uh, JavaScript. Uh, pretty much Ajax, and then uh, do the back end to kind of like do the login. So the full stack, yeah. Yeah, so I, I got into web programming uh, with through PHP and HTML and CSS and a little bit of JavaScript. Uh, and that was around 2007, 2006, maybe, probably even earlier. Uh, okay, wow. And, and so like that... When I came in at that point, uh, I don't think the cloud services existed by then. Like maybe they did. Maybe they're just coming out. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think same time. Technologies too, and uh, I think yeah, you, you only had your web hosting, and maybe they might have some yeah. sort of cloud, but it wasn't really called cloud. It wasn't the, the notion of distributed systems. You know, you bought your you bought your server, you knew what it was actually. When I said, like, you actually need a physical location of the server, and you can even send it the computer for them to host it for you. <laughs> yeah. <that>. yeah. <laughs> my, uh, the, the whole way I got into web development was my, my dad, he runs an IT business, and okay. so he had a server that he just gave me some space on. Oh, perfect. Uh, <laughs> and it, he would tell me stories about, like, uh, 
update. Like he knows the data center that the machine is in. He knows the people who run that data center. Mm. Uh, he know he gets like unusually good deals, but yeah. I still get the impression that he like pays them a lot uh, because his website was a little weird. Uh, my dad he made a site called Levio.com. Like his name was also Levio, and it it was like one of the biggest websites in the Dominican Republic. Okay. Uh, uh, it, he made that site uh, back in the portal era of the internet. Yes, yes. Uh, it was a portal, yeah. yes. <laughs> and so it was the the portal for Dominican websites. Okay. And and a lot of a lot of people built up the habit of just setting that page as their homepage <laughs> on their browser. Yeah. And it just links to all of their favorite sites. Ah, uh, that's and, it. That's, that's, that's amazing. That's uh, it's always nice to actually have that mentorship. I think it's it's extremely important. Uh, yeah. You know, you speaking of your dad being in it and encouraging you to get into it or and, and showing you kind of like the ropes around and uh, i was also fortunate too because when i was younger our computer teacher dr Wozinski actually uh was all about computers i mean she had a deal with apple so we were getting all these machines back in the 90s in west coast africa so we were fortunate that way and that definitely helped a lot to be able to build the curiosity and really get into it yeah like most people will just not get exposed to it. Like you'll never think about it. Uh, you won't, you won't consider it as an option. And then like someone older than you, someone smarter than you just puts it in front of you and you're like, look at this and exactly. <laughs> and it changes your life. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's exactly what I And I think uh, that's why like, you know, programs like IGDA and now with the internet and social media, it's important to remind people that it's not, it's not dark magic. It's, it's actually much easier to get in than you, than you might actually imagine. It's, it's work like any other work. It's involving, you have to spend time, et cetera. But uh, I think that was actually one of the biggest obstacles I faced when I was growing up was that it felt so foreign and so remote that it actually felt like uh, unrealistic. So I remember I mean, telling my mom that, you know, uh, yeah, I'm going to become a uh, debug games and uh, that didn't go on so well. <laughs> That's actually the funny story because when I told her that, because uh, you know, when I was younger, like in sixth grade, actually, academically, like I, I used to struggle a little bit uh, with, with schoolwork and everything, actually. Looking back, I, it took me a while to understand why I used to struggle, but I have like, a, I would say, mild dyslexia, so it made reading a little bit harder. But uh, by learning computers, it actually helped with logic. So I always had a different way of picking stuff up. So by the time I actually got introduced in the sixth grade, um, and I told them, hey, I'm going to become a computer programmer. Everybody looked at me funny. They were like, that's not realistic. You know, you have to be an accountant, a lawyer, uh, or something like a businessman. That's it. Yeah. Uh, lawyer or uh, what's it called? Doctor. Those are only three options. Computers. Lawyer and doctor. Uh, you, somebody happened. Uh, so, but I persevered for six years. And I remember when I graduated from high school, that was the when the internet had just picked up. So right before, right right after the crash actually and it was picking up again and the first question mom asked me is like you still have computer stuff you used to do and i'm like yes i'm actually going to school for you know to do games like that's good that's good good he kept it up because that's the next, next big thing so it was just funny that yeah. that happens <laughs> over the course of the years yeah yeah and those there was a point where tech just started eating every industry like every industry wanted to have some tech component that's in, in it yes and even it even replaced the whole small business yeah. thing. Like the whole startup culture is really just about using tech to make new businesses. I don't, I don't see any startups these days that aren't tech focused. That's or at least right. like any big startup. Yes. No. I mean, you have you need tech component at some point. Like even if you have a like you know you're starting like a, a restaurant, you still need a website. You still need some form of, of tech involved. Even though it's touched every aspect of our life, it's uh, for me. I view kind of like uh, the way the technology has changed our life, the way books change our life. You know, back in the printing press, where now everybody writes onto something. I think that's what tech is changing. And we fast forward now. I mean, we're now approaching 2020, <laughs> and uh, and everything is involved with tech, from from the way we learn, from how we see, from everything we do, and it's. Uh, yeah, it's exciting times. It's the best time to get in, and uh, and now you don't have much of an option. <laughs> yeah, and and kind of and also in addition to tech expanding a lot, the industry itself has also been has also learned 
to do a better job like advertising itself and advertising coding. Uh, like there's been a, a, an uptick in the movement of getting more people to learn to code. Yes. And it's finally, it's penetrated a lot of cultures now. Yes. Like just this, this perception that like now it's, it's almost to the level of like doctors and lawyers, like engineers. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, that's kind of healthy. It's a good thing for the industry. That's, that's absolutely true. And uh, I think, uh, you know, back in, uh, back in the nineties, uh, and even early two thousands, there was a whole notion is that you have to be very good at math to be able to even consider, uh, oh, yeah. programming, you know, it was restricted to just this hardcore science and anybody that did it was genius of some sort, which is not necessarily true. And I think, uh, like you were saying, the industry itself has made it also easier. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, 1990, when you're using Visual Studio, the IntelliSense was not as robust as it is now. You want you you had to actually memorize the whole code because you're actually doing it in a word editor, and so yeah. that, that makes it extra hard. You know, you have to really sit down and focus and and try to piece all the pieces together. The program language very low level it was not it was more for the computer than it was for the humans. You fast forward now, it's very easy. Like if you want to make a game, you have so many options. You just boot up Unity. Uh, if you want to, if you have a little bit of programming background, if you don't have any programming background, you can just, you know, boot up Game Studio and you don't even have to do anything. You just have to just put the pieces together. And that's a form of programming. And I think that making programming more democratic and speaking to the different languages that people speak is what has really helped the industry. Oh, that's true too. Uh, like most programming languages are very English focused yeah. these days. Yes. Yeah. And, and they're also very... Um, I'll, I'll, I'll use the term verbal. Very Latin language. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're verbals, you know. Uh, learning, uh, especially JavaScript, uh, which still has some C inheritance in it, it's still very easy. You know, somebody says, this function is called jump. It's intuitive. It's jump. So there's something involved jump with regards to that function or walk or load something. It makes it very easy to be able to come in. And also, I think one thing that's picking up a lot too is the visualness of programming. Uh, I think uh, when program becomes visual, it attracts more people. And uh, when when it's much more imaginary, it's a little bit. If you're just looking at code and then you have to imagine how the hardware is going to, then you have to imagine what it means an if function on the level of the zeros and ones. It becomes very hard. It, it becomes a big barrier. But now it's very easy to kind of like do a visual link. So I know that this, if you take web design for example. You just have a button, it's going to open the next page, and that makes sense for somebody who's just learning. Versus, I have to create a function that then will call a server that does the same thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but that, that whole perception of math, how programmers need to be good at math, I also think that that perception was also uh, advertised a lot by Google. Like, Google, they were famous in their early days for having these really high... Uh, I guess, like, standards for hiring. Yes. Um, and that created this popular perception of, oh, you need to be a genius to be a good programmer. Yeah. And everyone who gets hired at Google must be a genius. And because look at how hard their interviews are. Yeah. But now, now that we're several years after that, like, the consensus is that that hiring practice by Google was very destructive to the company itself. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. it was... They did not, it did not help them hire anyone that was that much better from what they would have hired otherwise. Yeah, I, th I think it's, uh, it's, it's not just Google, it's, uh, it's an industry-wide problem. It's yeah. big in the game industry. I think it's, it causes unnecessary barriers. It's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's, there's not a lot of, I'll say, skill building. There's a lot of skill using. So the barriers are very high. You want the best of the best. But very few studios are taking the time to develop the best. So you end up in a, like a very, like you mentioned, a destructive cycle as to how you develop these skills and get people experience when you want someone who's already experienced and entry is ridiculously high versus what you really have to do. And I think it's also the fact that the original programmers, original computers were, I mean, the original computers were in MIT labs and back in Stanford and all those very high institutions because those were the places that could afford it back in the 60s and 70s. And so those who got in were already mathematicians or scientists of some sort. And so that image kind of like persisted, as you were saying, through the Google era. And, but now it's become much more easy. Everybody has a computer now. And everybody has yeah. access to some form of technology. So it's no more the domain of 
uh, high level academia to anybody that has any small interest into it. And I think uh, when you're talking about, you know, the interview process and the barrier to the entry needs to be more realistic, right? Uh, like last I was mentioned on Twitter the other day is that, you know, there's a lot of people that are actually very, very talented, but when you're giving them a test that is required for them to pass assembly language just to be able to use JavaScript, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know, it whatsoever. So that, that is to be more realistic. You, you have to get more people involved and uh, you have to be, yeah, and you have to also be patient. I think sometimes you have the financial pressure, which makes it like very difficult to be patient because especially in the game industry, it's all about, we got to go out, we have to crunch, we have to do what we have to do. Yeah. That would take like, you know, two years, we have to do it in like two months or that's how ridiculous sometimes it gets. And so, you know, you, because of that, we don't have the time to train somebody. We just have to take somebody who's already good. But uh, I've noticed that the games industry is significantly worse than the main tech industry at doing that that skill that skill building work that you mentioned. Yes, yes, and it's a uh, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a little bit problematic. Getting better, so we have we have some long ways to go. Uh, it's ironic because the game industry is one of the wealthiest in the tech industry. I mean, we're talking about hundred billion. Yeah, the revenues. But it's 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 almost feels like we're still in the middle ages when it comes to the way this money is used and the way it's uh, it's uh, it's distributed. You know, it's, it's considered it's, it's a very handful of big players, and uh, and uh, people are not like we spend a lot of time. As a game developer, we spend a lot of time making games that work perfectly for the end user. So we do research upon research. We have all this data, make the game so much easier for the end user to use. But we don't make the process of making the game that much easier, <laughs> which is kind of like uh, an irony, I, I find. So, you know, uh, at, at Illuminate Studios, we are trying to make sure that literally no crunch. Uh, it, sometimes it gets hard to do because you get to the deadline coming along. And you're realizing that you're not going to be with the deadline, but you have to kind of like be like, okay, we're going to miss this the deadline. We just have to be patient. We're going to get there versus burning the team out. And then two years yeah, from now, everybody's it's, like, it hey. takes a lot of discipline. Exactly. It does take a lot of discipline. It also, a lot of, uh, what's it called? Uh, just dealing with hard realities. Okay. It's self control. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, being, being flexible, I think. And realizing that if you put in the time and you do it right, it'll pay off. It's, it's all about long-term vision versus the quick game now that you're going to get. Yeah, and there's a lot of, basically, another way to look at the situation is, yes, there's a lot of companies that are not doing it right, but that also means that there's a lot of room for innovation and growth. That's correct. And that fully, uh, so if you, and I, I think the indie scene is, is uh, uh, well-positioned to do that because there's so many players in the indie scene. Um, yeah. in this scene, like, you know, that you shouldn't look at it as competitors. You should look at it as colleagues, as friends, because people are very open. People want to work with each other. You know, it's very easy to go to a meetup and somebody's busy working his company, but he's willing to collaborate with you. And these type of collaborations allow us to look back at the industry and be like, as individuals, we have to approach it differently. This is, we can't go all over twist all the way. We have to make it more democratic. We have to be more, we have to take care of ourselves. You know, like we're talking about physical health, mental health. We're talking about social health and uh, all these yeah. things. And it does affect the product that we make because, you know, if somebody's it's stuck in an office for over 60 hours a week, it's not healthy. And the games that he makes will just reflect as just a, it'll be, you'll be stuck in the same environment and then you're repeating the same cycle, repeating the same type of game. There's no innovation that comes out of that. So uh, it's very important to, to really be open and uh, communicate amongst ourselves and, and change change it if we can. That's a really interesting point that you made about the indie scene is that it did feel like it wasn't until a lot of people started making indie games and that they started if that the conversation really got started about mental uh, personal health, uh, team team health and team dynamics and like work life balance and yeah. like that conversation has now like it's gotten so strong that it's now affecting the bigger companies. Uh, yes. And and it's even driving a lot of the conversations about unionization in the industry as well. Yes. 
And uh, and that that was a that was a direct line that I did not notice before. Like, wait, the, years ago, all those conversations I saw up in the indie space that were just starting about personal health and mental health, it's yeah. now having a direct impact on today's like triple A scene. That's uh, and that's that's yeah, that's correct. It's 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 more a case of. Uh, now there's more people involved and there's more people from different walks of life. Yeah. Uh, the industry is, is still small, like for, for this, this, the amount of revenue generated is still very small. We're talking about the participants are in the thousands versus all the tech industries where the participants are in the millions, right? And so yeah. everybody kind of like knows each other. And I think when it was just a handful of small players, it was just more status quo, right? It works, so we're going to let it keep working. But now, yeah, and it was yeah. also a bias of like the people who were there or the people who could take it and the people who couldn't take it weren't there. And yeah, so they weren't that, part of the that. conversation. Yeah. And, and so now with indie development, anybody can start making games. But then when you start, you begin to see the, the reality that is, right? And not everybody is willing to take over. But also, I think it's also a case of the beauty of being indie is that you can speak. Right? Uh, you just speak. You can speak honestly. Uh, sometimes, you know, when you're working in a big institution, you, you really have to watch what you say. It's, it's very rigid the way it works. And it's not just a game. Yeah. It's, 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 it's any corporate center, right? It's very and when, when you're in any company, you have to consider that you are in an organization exactly. and you should be working in alignment with the goals of that organization. Exactly. And, you, it, and that, that alone, that is, it's, it's kind of what it means to be a good employee, but it, it's unfortunately also biases everything that you do to be less personal and more, uh, I guess, corporate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, there's that too. But the general consensus is, like you're saying, when you come in, you're working for the corporation, and uh, you're on the clock, and it's depending on how the corporation is set up, it usually tends to be the pyramid scheme. And so with the indie scene, uh, going back to that, is that now everybody can just speak. So you can speak about your personal experience. If, you know, you, were, you just spent... 60 hours because that's the way it is and you are, that's not working out for me. You don't have to be quiet about it. You can actually say something about it and have a conversation about it without the risk of some form of repercussions, you know, losing a job or some sort of uh, <clears throat> being shunned or anything like that. So I think that's actually really up the, uh, the industry a lot. And it actually has made it more innovative. We're talking about tools that could not have existed like 10 years ago. I mean, you uh, keep bringing up Unity, you're talking about now, Big players changing even their business model. Uh, was it called Photoshop? Now has a monthly <clears throat> subscription that makes it yeah. easier to get in. Music Studio is now free, and all these makes it so that the participants that are in can explore it in a different way. And that also brings that the big players now begin to take notice because it's it's uh, uh, the compet. It's not let's say the competition. There's more people involved, so there's different ways of doing it. And so the risk, you know, when you're that big, you become risk averse because, in honesty, in their defense is every movement you make touches thousands of people and millions of dollars. So you just can't yeah. make decisions lightly. It has to really go through, you have to really analyze. And so- And and that's also like a real responsibility that they have because they're such a big company, they, would, they can't be reckless with the livelihoods of all the people that they've exactly, hired. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's, it's a bigger- So that's why it's so important for the indices to keep trying is because you're small, you're nimble, right? And, and you could do things on a micro level that bigger studios cannot afford. And so in all honesty, like, you know, being in the industry for so long, it's conversations that we have amongst ourselves, but sometimes it's just hard to do because when a game takes four years to make, right? The decision you make in your first literally six months stays with you for the next four years. So it becomes very hard for the big studios to change over this course of time, right? Because uh, by the time it comes out, <clears throat> you have to go back to the drawing board and if it's successful, you know, it kind of like feeds on it, et cetera. But that's what we've seen is we see a slower change of the big studio. On the, small, the indie scene is a little bit, you make smaller games, you're much more nimble, you can be flexible, so you could change things that are not working. And that way it also forces the big studio to also look and it's not, we're not, it's not us versus them. It's we're all in together now. They might change slower, we might change quickly. We all change together. Cool. So you are in Montreal, correct? That's correct, yeah. What's the indie scene like there? Oh, the indie scene is big. Uh, Montreal, it's actually I actually moved to Montreal because it's it's pretty much, I think it's, 
top three when it comes to game development hubs in North America. So there's a lot of studios. Actually, if you name it, all the big studios are here and all the small studios are also springing up here. Uh, the government is very supportive uh, with the institutions. There's a lot of like tax breaks, there's a lot of incentives, a lot of programs that you can apply to. And, Any uh, grants? So what? <laughs> Any grants? There are grants, there are grants. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the CMF, there are a lot of tech grants, a lot of research grants. You know, most of them are more kind of like subsidies, more than grants. So mm -hmm. for example, like uh, implement subsidies, you do research that qualifies you able to get into it. So that makes it, uh, at the end of the day too, you claim some tax breaks on it after your first yeah. year of operation. So that really does reduce the price of setting up a studio here. Uh, we also in Montreal, the cost of living much lower than other parts of Canada, let, uh, let alone North America. And uh, so to the indie scene, it's uh, because a lot of people were in the industry in the early days, it's been a lot of people exploring that scene because now it's more realistic. You have, now I just turned 35, so I've reached a point in my life where both some form of savings, you can really be like, okay, I'll take my savings, I'll start my game studio and see where it goes, right? And a lot of people are reaching that age where they get into it. So you begin to see an uptake of indie scenes and people collaborating. So it's uh, definitely one of the places to be. Nice. Uh, it, it, it reminds me a lot of Seattle. Like kind of lots of big companies lots of small companies yes really, I, I think, really strong community yeah sorry yeah no i think it's uh, like seattle when it first started you know when microsoft had just started you know it's uh it was small but there was a lot of garage studios springer now it's a big and this all oh, is very eclectic and everything but uh it's uh kind of how more travels right now you're still you're still building up um, have you done a lot of traveling as in the games industry? Like, have you seen other, have you gotten a chance to either visit other big, uh, games towns or other communities around? Um, not as much as I would like, I would like, uh, in the past. So, but that's changing now. So now I'm, I have more delivery to be able to travel. So, you know, we're looking forward to GDC that's coming up. We're looking forward to PAX, uh, looking forward mm -hmm. to GamesCon and all these little events. So, oh yeah, the... The conference circuit when you want to promote your game. <laughs> As, uh, and there's also the yeah, exactly that's 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 uh, the most important thing. But that also takes you to these different cities that you're that you're talking about. But it also allows you to connect. Uh, I think one of the most important things as an indie show is remember it's all about networking. You can't you can't do it alone. Like you cannot. It's not a one man army. It's uh, no matter how good you are, you just can't do it alone. It's uh, it's never enough time in the day, and you have to make as much connections as possible. So, yeah, um, I think literally every speaker that we have at some point says that networking is the most important thing. <laughs> yes, yes, networking. It's, it's, I cannot, uh, it's like, it cannot be overstated, uh, you know, how important networking is. I mean, I have people that so, I worked with from 10 years ago that I'm still connecting. We haven't even spoken on a regular basis for 10 years, but they're all excited that I'm doing something and they're collaborating with me now. So it's very important to build. Yeah, and, and so like if there are students out there who are like struggling to either find their first job out of school or something, and you're not quite on top of your networking game, maybe this is like a reminder to be like, get on top of it. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and you know, with this, it's now you can connect with people on Facebook, on Messenger, on Discord, on Twitter. Yeah, so networking like our Discord server right here. <laughs> exactly. So that's exactly that. So it's it's uh, it's important to that. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, if you're introvert or you're not comfortable in big crowds, um, that's okay. Like you can still, like I said, there's many ways to now network. You know, if you're not comfortable going to an event where there's hundreds, thousands of people, you can still connect to Discord, uh, ping somebody on LinkedIn. Uh, network that way so if you feel more comfortable sending messages and stuff like that, yeah people more receptive. direct messaging direct messaging people is like a great tactic yeah. um even even if one person doesn't respond there'll always be someone who somebody, responds yes, and yes. you develop a good relationship with them exactly and and you never know you know somebody somebody else like if you ping me like hey you know uh how are you doing this do you have any position open i'm like maybe we might not have nothing right now but one of my Friend is trying to something, so why don't you ping him? Tell him I referred to you, and before you know yeah. it, you know two people already in the industry. Then they refer to somebody else. They invite you over to do something. They send you resources, and uh, that's how that's how you build. So it's uh, apart from learning the the hard skills like programming art, etc. It's just uh, it's just speaking up because 
uh, regardless of whether you want to do indie or corporate or do a career, uh, you always have to work with people. That's not going to change. Like you always have to work with somebody to build a game. Like if you're a programmer, you have to work with an artist. Artists, you have to work with programmers. If you're a social manager, you have to work with project manager. You have to work with people. So it's always good to kind of like be able to communicate with people at a certain level, whether in person, whether via chat, whatever you're comfortable with, but communicate with people. Yeah, that's what it means to have a professional career as opposed to like being hired for like a part-time job at like a fast food restaurant. <laughs> like it's it's just a, a, a different set of requirements in terms of what's expected for you and the skills that yeah. make you move. Yes, yes, for sure. And uh, and uh, now it's, it's, it's easier now. So I think I encourage lots of yeah. students to take advantage of that. It's uh, there's so many ways to do it. And, uh, and now too, you could just build your own demo and just start shopping around. Like these game events that happen, always, always be on top of it. If you can go, go. You know, even so, if it's, as a spectator, just go. Like, you know, PAX, if it's close by, just go. GDC, if it's close by, just go. Uh, people are open to talk to you. Like, you know, even if it's a two minutes, five minutes conversation, just that. And you never know which impression you make. So just get out there. Yeah. yeah and and if, if these conferences and events are too expensive, uh, some of the most cheaper, like, passes might be a little restrictive. Like, the GDC's cheapest pass is a student pass. Yes. Um that kind of pass it might still be worth going uh like especially if you don't have a network at all yet yes uh and if it's, the cheapest pass is only worth it if you actually live near gdc but yeah the next cheapest pass after that which is the expo pass it's 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 usually what i recommend for yes and, um, and uh yeah and and if you go like we got the, the minute you're there you know, even if you don't even get into the expo, people go in and out of the expo. Yeah, <laughs> you'd be surprised. It's being there you know? too. You'd be surprised. It's like the hustle of surprise. You just stop. People take breaks. You go outside and you just go for lunch and you're hanging out and people just keep talking. And then even if you know, like I mean, GDC is all the way to San Francisco and it's not everywhere they can be, especially if you're in the East Coast, it's not uh, it's feasible. But there's a lot of meetups yeah. that happens, like in Montreal, like uh, there's a lot of meetups. There's a ton of meetups. Uh, Meetup.com. It's the place to go because it's literally shows you the meetups for all the different countries and all the different cities. Yes. And uh, and you'd be surprised who else in your community is doing it. And usually that's all that you need to be able to get started with. Yeah, and even surprisingly with small areas, ten, yeah. you might be surprised that they have a meetup. <laughs> yes. For games. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's because people are like people want to connect, and sometimes we just don't know where to start. Like I, you know. Even when I started my own studios, like I knew people in the bigger industry, but on the ground level, I'm like, ah, you know, I don't know anybody that much in the indie scene. Caught up working at the big studios for so long, so I just went to meetup.com, and within like before I knew it, I was just talking to different people, and I realized how big the indie community and how. Uh, I've also noticed a lot of meetups, uh, almost moving to Facebook. Uh, so you, once you find the name of the group. Or even if you just search like game development on Facebook, you might find local events. Like they will post their meetups as Facebook events. Yes, exactly. And and Facebook events definitely. It's it's easiest to set up, and everybody's doing it, and everybody sets up events for everything. And, uh, you can set one up yourself. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and you'd be surprised there was. If you start. Oh, sorry, your voice cut off. I live in a very small remote town. And I don't think there's any meetup. Or I didn't find any meetup. I only set it up, I guarantee somebody will be able to uh, find it. Yeah. Cool. So uh, we have five minutes left. Uh, there was one question I had in mind earlier that I forgot about. But I probably won't remember it. Uh, when, I guess, do you have, oh, yeah, I remember now. So my question was, when you, a lot, a lot of problems that a lot of students, mm -hmm. they find it very hard to actually get hired once they graduate. Uh, what was it like after you got graduated? Was your first job a teaching job after that? Yeah, my tr first job was a teaching job. And uh, once mm -hmm. again, the reason why, getting in the game industry, let's put it this way, getting in the corporate game industry is very, can be very cagey and it's very, can be very restrictive. Well, I mean, right. second from the high level of the tests and the fact that they always look for experienced people, it could be, it could be intimidating, it could be very, 
it could be an ordeal. Yeah, even entry level positions require years of experience, exactly. which is a contradiction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, which is ironic. But this one network plays a big, 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 big role. The reason why I actually started teaching is because when I was an international academy designer, I, this was me really wanting to get into video games. I, I poured my, my heart and soul into it and uh, uh, did pretty well and, uh, and got to know the, uh, the program coordinator there. Uh, and uh, when I graduated, I was still not commuting yet at that time. So I was not only an immigrant, but I'm also a graduate. That makes things 10 times more difficult. <laughs> uh, and so uh, while I was waiting for paperwork to go through, you have like this waiting period. So I was talking to him and I was like, well, I mean, I've graduated. I've, you know, I've applied to different places. I'm not great getting anywhere. And uh, so I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to start playing. <laughs> and maybe become a professional. Uh, that didn't go too well because I injured my knee like a month after. And that was the end of that. Mm. And so, yeah. And so he's like, look, you did very well. Academically, very good. Uh, they say I could teach you position open because, you know, I used to always give like a tutorials to my fellow students and everything. And he's like, why don't you just teach for a little bit and just build your rep up that way. And that's why I actually got into it. And it was teaching video games, which is literally what, I, what I've been studying for the past six years. And uh, it was a trip. Because I lived in Toronto and I had to actually bus it to Kitchener, which is two hours away from Toronto every single day. So I had to hop onto a Greyhound. I'm like, I'm going to take it. It doesn't matter where this. So I did it. And that was what actually got me into it. So there is no one way. Uh, wow. So there's no one way to get it. It's not just applying or anything like that. You might sometimes have to do volunteer work, go into all these events, uh, showing up your demo. Uh, there's millions of ways to really get it in. And for me, teaching was the way that I got it. And then from then on, uh, my actual getting to a big studio was actually through localization program, which is like not the first thing anybody thinks of when I think of video games. Was that THQ? Uh, it was a THQ, yeah. So yeah. Uh, I got in for making a, a tools for localization pipeline. And nice. working with localization is touch every single game. So you get to talk to everybody in the studio so you don't get stuck in one spot. And from then on, you know, I, I, I been the back end, I told them, you know, I'm I know how to do backhand, and then it just made me do one or two things uh, on the backhand of actually was uh, on uh, company of fuels. And that's how I actually got into an online program and that opened more doors. So, um, yeah, the lesson there, is, there is a lot. Really be, this... You have to be creative about how you kind of like get in. Uh, if you're getting, if you're not getting into, you're not passing interviews, don't get discouraged. There's, there's uh, different ways. And uh, now it's also easier to make a demo and I encourage a lot of people. To, to do that yeah and that's that's very common like uh most people do end up having to basically like form a, a winding path that eventually leads to games yes um like that I, I had to do that i after school i worked I, I was lucky enough to work for microsoft but it wasn't in games uh, but that was a big help uh i've met people there who wish they were working on games they're kind of in the same position as me <laughs> yes but but uh I, there, was, there was at least one person who i met who really wanted to work in games he was working at microsoft and we were we were working on an it product azure active directory um and he was just so miserable because he wasn't working on a game <laughs> yeah. and i and i i always thought that that was a waste like i'm like oh you're getting all this experience you should yeah. Stop thinking about games for two seconds and just build your career right now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and, usually, and usually that's what happens is that, yeah, you know, you're talking about people being, having experience. You might maybe be able to get in at, let's say, 22 when you graduate, but that doesn't mean you cannot get in when you're 30. And at that moment, just build up your experience, build up your resume. Like when I was working at Gametronics, I was working with people that were coming from Russia and their experience was working on mixed simulators. Like, that's insane. <clears throat> they work on like like speed, like the fighter jets and everything. And uh, so, but it took them forever, right? It took them ten years to be able to come in. They moved to North America, got into games. So there's uh, sometimes you just have to be a little bit patient. But patient does not mean being idle. Yeah. So that's that's very important. Don't be idle. You have to be patient, but you should never be idle. But always focus on what it is you want to do. So if you know you want to be an artist, or if you want to be a programmer, or you want to be sound. While whatever career that you're in right now, while you're building up your resume, always build up your portfolio with regards to that. Always keep drawing, always keep programming, making demos to keep yeah. yourself fresh. And then one, and somebody will see it. I trust me, somebody's going to see it. It was the same thing for me. I built a lot of demos, built a lot of websites, and that definitely helped when the time came. And definitely 
keep an eye on where you have to improve next and keep improving uh, so that when you that that way when an opportunity does arrive you will have brought your skill set to a point that's very attractive to a company that's exactly that yeah that's exactly that so cool to the folks, and un- just, just keep going at it uh, it's, uh, yeah it's you know you're still young <laughs> let's put it that way when you when you're 20 it's Use, use your like, youth. <laughs> yeah. It feels like when you're you done 20, it's over, but it's not over. It's just we have a long ways to go. So <laughs> just keep at it. Well, thank you, Gideon, for joining us today. This was pretty great. Yes. No, thank you guys for having me. And it was awesome. And I really enjoyed this. Yeah. And I'll, I'll send you a link when the podcast is up. Sounds uh, good. And uh, to just, all the people that were in, uh, just uh, feel free. Discord on. I'm, I'm always open. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate. Yeah, don't don't hesitate to contact uh, Gideon. I will include your contact info and all this stuff too. Perfect. Uh, so just for the podcast, uh, you've been listening to the IGDA Students Podcast. Uh, we are the International Game Developers Association, uh, specifically the student program within that association. Uh, we are the biggest games industry association in the world in a, uh, the most international one, at least. <laughs> uh, and we host events like this all the time, like AMAs with developers and other stuff. We also manage a local student chapter program, which are basically school clubs that are uh, associated with the IGDA. Uh, and if you want to, if you want, if you're looking for more resources on how to break into the industry and how to build your skill set, go to IGDA.org and look us up. <laughs> Thank you. Perfect. Thank you guys. Have a good one. See ya. Thank you.